This morning we continue our topical study on spiritual warfare and the armor of God as detailed and described in Ephesians chapter 6. And so I invite you to turn with me there in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Ephesians chapter number 6. For those of you who are history buffs, or more specifically those of you that are war history buffs, Buffs, there is a theory to explain why Benedict Arnold committed treason and turned traitor against the United States in the Revolutionary War. Benedict Arnold's act of treason, as I'm sure you're well aware, was the attempt to smuggle to the British a diagram of the West Point Fort that was located on the Hudson River. The cannons on the walls at West Point guarded all of the ship traffic that traveled up and down the Hudson River, and if the British had the plans to the fort, they could figure out a way to silence the cannons and sail their ships safely up the Hudson River to attack the American forces from the coast. Benedict Arnold was found to be a traitor for trying to smuggle those plans of the fort to the, to the British, but he escaped capture and then defected from the American cause to join the British uh, army as a general. But why? Why would Benedict Arnold do such a thing? According to this theory, Benedict Arnold was actually an American loyalist. However, when America asked the French for help in our battle against the British, the French sent so many soldiers that there were at one time more French soldiers fighting than American soldiers fighting. The theory is that Benedict Arnold surmised that the French had the mind to help the Americans defeat the British only to make America a French colony rather than a British colony. Therefore, in Benedict Arnold's reasoning, this is the the theory, the hypothesis, right? In Benedict Arnold's reasoning, America was going to become either a British colony or a French colony, and to Arnold, the lesser of the two evils would be for America to become a British colony rather than becoming a French colony, so he felt the best thing to do was to help the British win the war and defeat the French. You see. Of course, ironically, after America defeated the British, the French Revolution broke out, and all of the French soldiers were recalled back to France, leaving very little French influence in our country today. What's the point of that that story? This. Warfare is not always what it seems to be. Behind the scenes, in any war, there is diplomacy, there's espionage, and there's negotiations, and there's covert movement, there are personal agendas, there are political favors, we understand. There is deceit and betrayal and surprise attacks, and for that reason, books and books have been written about about wars, and hours and hours of documentaries have have been recorded and presented just to tell the stories behind the stories. That is, the war behind, the same is true, folks, in spiritual warfare. In spiritual warfare, there are things happening behind the scenes that are unseen to us. And I would even cite the story of Job. Job was unaware of what took place in Job chapter 1. And so we must not be naive. Rather, we must know that Satan will use any and all 
twisted tactics to defeat us, even if they are unknown or unseen behind the scenes. Ephesians 6.11 calls them the wiles or the schemes of the devil. The Greek word is methodia, from which we get our English word method. He has methods that are covert. And in Ephesians 6.16 this morning, Satan's method is pictured as fiery darts. And so for that reason, we must put on the whole armor of God, verse number 11. We must take up the whole armor of God, verse number 13, so that we can stand, verse number 14. This is the theme of our summer series. So from Ephesians 6, verse 16, I prepared a message simply titled, The Shield of Faith. Let me pause for prayer, and then we'll look at the scripture together. God in heaven, we are mindful of the spiritual warfare that is raging around us. Lord, we don't always see it, we don't always sense it, but we know the reality of it. God, I pray that you would enable us, equip us, empower us to stand in the strength of the Lord. This morning, Lord, as we we consider the shield of faith, that we might take up the shield of faith as we war against the wicked one. Lord, we're grateful that you have already secured the victory, and we're so grateful that you will hold us fast in spite of these things. But Lord, as we go to the scripture now, may your spirit give us insight and understanding. May your spirit be our teacher. Lord, may we be filled with your spirit as we read the words of your your spirit. I pray for the Fourth Baptist Church and those who are listening by way of the radio broadcast or the, the live stream I pray, Lord, that you would help us to endure as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. In my New King James version of the English Bible, Ephesians 6, verse number 16, begins with the words, above all, you look at your copy of the scripture, above all, that gives us the impression that the shield of faith this morning is more important than the other pieces of spiritual armor. However, this might be better translated as it is in the New American Standard, in addition to all, or as it is in the English Standard Version, in all circumstances. The Pastor Matt paraphrase of verse 16 would would read like this, I've, I've printed it for you there in your notes, whatever you do and however you do it, above all, or in addition to all, or in all circumstances, Whatever you do and however you do it, stand therefore by taking up the shield of faith. Now, look at the language in verse number 16. The word taking or taking up in verse 16 is the fourth participle in this series. And I want to highlight that for you again here in the text. We are commanded to stand in verse 14. You see it there. Stand, verse 14, having girded your waist with truth. Verse 14 also, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15, having shod your feet. These participles modify the verbal imperative or command to stand back in verse 14. Verse 14 is the command, stand. How do we do that? By girding our waist with truth. By putting on the breastplate of righteousness. By shodding or shoeing our feet with the gospel of peace. These participles are modifying the command of how we stand. But now in verse 16 is the fourth of the participles, we are commanded to stand, how so? By taking the shield of faith, or taking up the shield of faith. However, this fourth participle is different from the first three, in that the fourth one is in the active voice, the first three are in the middle voice. 
You say, Pastor Matt, what does that mean? Well, the middle voice describes the subject acting upon itself. It's reflexive. In this case, the middle voice, the Christian soldier, is putting on the first three pieces of armor himself for himself, affixing the armor to himself for himself, the middle voice, reflexive. The active voice is not necessarily action done to oneself, but action simply done. It describes the subject performing the action. The Christian soldier actively takes up the shield of faith now, and it repeats the main verb from verse 13, where Paul summarizes the whole point of this entire passage is take up the whole armor of God. This is something that we do. You say, Pastor Matt, never mind the technicalities. For crying out loud, just tell us what it is and and how we do it, right? Are you with me? That's how I feel, right? But because of my training and my education at Central Seminary, I I had no other option other than to wrestle with the text uh, and explain it in that way. Because language is important, words are important, the syntax is important, and we want to make sure that we're doing this right. The command is to stand. How do we do it? There are these participles that explain to us how we do this. They're in the middle voice. We do these things to ourselves, for ourselves. But now, taking up the shield of faith is in the active voice. And this is how we're going to do it. So after that exegetical exposition, let me give you in a topical way, answer these questions. The first question there in your notes, what is the shield of faith? What is this shield that we are to take up? A shield was an important piece of defensive weaponry used, of course, in the ancient world. There were a couple different types of shield. There was a small, round shield that was strapped to the forearm of the soldier for use in hand-to-hand personal combat. Today, we might liken it to Captain America's round shield that, that would be held on one forearm. But then there was another shield, a large rectangular shield that a soldier carried and, and he stood behind to provide complete coverage for his body. And when soldiers would stand side by side and link their shields together, it would create an impenetrable wall. And we've seen this demonstrated in, in movies of, of ancient or medieval warfare. We've seen this even in our own day of riot police in the streets of cities that, that might try to contain a crowd by holding these large shields and forming a wall. That is the shield that is named here in Ephesians 6 verse 16. In ancient times, the shield would be made of wood or perhaps covered in leather or metal. Today, they're made of transparent material, bulletproof plexiglass or glass, I I presume, that allows a police officer or a soldier to see through his shield. And Paul is using this metaphor here to describe the spiritual weapon of, of faith. And so, forgive the technicality again, but grammatically, the word faith, the shield of faith, verse number 16, it's a genitive of apposition, which means this. It is the shield which is faith. And again, the Pastor Matt translation, if I were to translate this most literally, you take up the shield which is faith. I'll give it for you there in your notes. It's, it's faith. You say, really, that wasn't too difficult, right? It's the shield which is faith. I would have you turn back to chapter 3, Ephesians 3, just quickly. Paul speaks to this subject in his prayer for the Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 16, that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit. Be strong in the Lord. The spirit of God is our strength. In the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through 
faith. And Paul is praying that our strength to stand in spiritual warfare is by faith. Okay, then what is faith? Or what is the faith? Let's drill down a little bit more. Letter A, the faith, the faith, in italics there, is the body of gospel truth. It's the body of gospel truth. Ephesians 4, verse number 5, it's across the page. There is one faith. Ephesians 4, verse 13, speaks of the unity of the faith. We could cite Jude 3, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So the faith is the body of gospel truth, the faith. But beyond the content of that faith is the conduct of that faith. Faith is our active belief in the gospel truth. Beyond the content of our faith is the conduct of our faith. It's the active belief. We're taking up the shield of faith. We're taking up the body of truth. We're taking up the content of of the word of God, and we're standing with that. Look back again. I want to make sure that we're understanding this in the context of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse number 15. Look at chapter 1, verse 15, and we'll do a quick survey here through this letter. Chapter 1, verse 15, therefore I also, after I heard of your faith, in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Look at chapter 2, verse number 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Chapter 3, verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and and grounded and such. In, In my meditation on these things, I find the theme of faith throughout all of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, of course, culminating now with this shield of faith. It's the the body or the content of the word of God, the gospel, and also the active belief or the, um, the content and the conduct there. Now, what I have been doing in my mind, and perhaps some of this has occurred to you in the course of of our summer here, um, I have categorized and connected the first three pieces of armor that we have studied to subpoint letter A, the faith, the body of the gospel of truth. And then this fourth piece of armor, the shield of faith, to letter B, our active belief. So it appears to me that the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes of the gospel are the body of gospel truth that we put on our bodies. Remember, those participles are in the middle voice. We stand in the faith, the content of the gospel. That's our position. But now, in verse 16, above all, we take up the shield of faith in an active, ongoing, continuing to believe way. That is our practice. Maybe I could put it this way. Positionally, we stand in Christ by faith. That's letter A. Practically, we stand for Christ by faith. That's letter B. You say, Pastor Matt, you are way overthinking this, right? (laughs) Well, I'm going to ask you to even think more of it, of course, this coming week in your small groups. The pattern of Paul's presentation here, it's changing a bit in verse 16. Previously, he simply listed the pieces of the armor that we are to wear. One, two, three. One, the belt of truth. Two, the breastplate of righteousness. Three, the shoes of the gospel. 
But now in this case, there is something qualitatively and functionally different about the shield of faith because he explains what the weapon does. Look at verse 16. We are to actively take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench or to extinguish all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And so while the first three pieces of armor we strapped on, we put on, we, because of our position in the content of the gospel, we are now taking that same body of truth, but we're doing something with it. We're actively believing with it. You follow that? You say, okay, pastor, what are the fiery darts of the wicked one that that can be quenched then? What are Satan's fiery darts is the next logical question. And from ancient and medieval warfare all the way up to our early history of our own country, the tactic of lighting fire to arrows dipped in pitch or wrapped in cloth that was soaked in a flammable uh, fluid was a common practice. And we understand that a flaming arrow can cause much greater damage to its target than simply a a point of impact because the fire then would infect a a larger area. And so Satan's fiery darts or flaming arrows, I'm going to suggest, are the accusations and the temptations that he hurls at us, high and low, fast and slow. You can fill it in, accusations and, and temptations are the fiery darts. Satan's accusations and temptations are are different for for each of us. What might be a lethal blow to one of you may not be to another or may not be for me, but what might be a lethal strike to me may not be for you. And in your small groups this week, I I want you to discuss the different wiles of the devil, the, the different fiery darts of the devil. How is Satan an accuser of the brethren? Revelation 12, verse 10. How is Satan the tempter? as he was to Adam and Eve or to to Jesus Christ. And I think there's a lot that we can discuss in exploring that, but there's one common characteristic to Satan's accusations and temptations, and it's this. And and you need to note this and write this down, because I I think this will draw the discussion uh, to a, a single point later this week. The fiery darts of accusation and temptation from Satan are intended to destroy our faith in God and his word. That's why we have the shield of faith, you see. Because the accusations and the temptations of Satan are to destroy our faith. I'll give you the Bible examples. Faith in God and his word. First, Satan's temptation of Eve. Think of that occasion in the Garden of Eden. Satan appears to Eve and tempts her by questioning what God has said. Did God really say... Well, let me think about that. I think this is what God said. What Satan did in that moment was to attack Eve and assault Eve's faith in God's word. At issue was whether or not God could be trusted. And at issue was whether or not Eve in that moment would trust what God said or trust what Satan said. It's kind of just a binary matter. Rather simple. Another example. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. How did Satan do that? In the Judean wilderness, Satan appeared to to Jesus and tempted him by challenging him with what God had said. You say, no, it wasn't like that. Yeah, it was. How do I know it was like that? Because Jesus successfully rejected the temptation by citing what God had said. 
And in both of those occasions, Satan's accusations and temptations are targeting our trust, our faith in God and his word. Every accusation and every temptation in some way is a struggle between choosing to believe what God has said or what Satan has said, one against the other. So I want to give you some practical examples, and I want you to work on this later this, this week. I offer these as subpoints in your notes, um, and they're going to be other than what you expect. You expect me now to speak of things like immorality and addictions and demonic oppression, but Satan's fiery darts aren't always like that. You see, warfare is not always what it seems. There is subterfuge, like Benedict Arnold And there are things happening behind the scenes. And so Satan's wiles or his schemes, his methods, his fiery darts might look like these things. First, how about doubt? Doubt. Can I really trust God in my circumstance? Do you think that Noah ever doubted God's word to him when he was building the ark? I bet there were times when Satan introduced doubt into Noah's mind and heart. Should I really be building the ark? This makes no sense to me. It's very unpopular. Do you think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ever doubted God's protection of them? If I were a betting man, I bet that Satan introduced doubt into their minds and hearts of those young Hebrew men uh, as they might have talked among themselves, guys, this does not seem like a good idea. It's not going to go well. I have no doubt that Satan assaulted them with doubts because doubt is a fiery dart of Satan. And he will challenge your confidence, your faith, your belief in the assurance that God has, has given you. Is God good all the time? Can God answer my prayer? Can he meet my needs? I'm no good. and God probably doesn't love me because of what I've done. I've failed. He's probably angry with me. What if Jesus isn't coming again? Then what's the point of all this? You see those doubts? The misgivings of our minds and our hearts? A fiery dart, an accusation, and temptation can come in the form of a doubt, can I really trust God? Let me give you a second one. How about this? How about discouragement? Why is life so difficult? Or why is it so difficult when I am doing what God wants me to do? That's what's hard for me. Lord, I'm, I'm doing my best here. I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to trust and obey, but why, does, why do you have to make it difficult? Discouraged. Moses obeyed the Lord. He led Israel out of Egypt only to face the complaining of the people in the wilderness. Remember, there was no food or water. You read Numbers chapter 11. Uh, Moses was pretty discouraged. Lord, why is this difficult? Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel by God's power, and then he had to flee the threats of Jezebel. Lord, what, what are you doing here? God, I, I thought you wanted me to do this. I thought I was doing your will. It's not going well. I think I'm failing. You ever get discouraged? There are some things in my life that, that are of no temptation to me. 
I, I, have, I have no temptation for alcohol and drunkenness. And I praise God for that. But folks, discouragement crushes me sometimes. How about this? How about delay? Delay. Why is this taking so long? You remember Abraham and Sarah? God made a promise that Abraham and Sarah would have a son. God promised a son. God's word promised a son. Abraham and Sarah trusted God for a son. son. But what's taking so long, Lord? And the temptation was to give up on trusting God's word and take matters into their own hands. You see, Satan's fiery dart in that case wasn't the temptation for Abraham to commit immorality, although he did. The temptation was to give up on trusting God's word and take matters into his own hand. That's an important difference, you see. Of course, because God was so slow in fulfilling his promises, Abraham took matters into his own hands and conceived a child with Hagar, not the promised son. And so there may be doubt, there may be discouragement, there may be delay. How about this? How about despair? Is it is it worth it? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, he said, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. For we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Stop there. What is that describing? We don't look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Is that not describing faith, right? Trusting the promises of God, though yet unseen. For the eternal things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And he's saying, Paul is saying that his faith sustained him. His shield of faith, his eyes of faith, had protected him from the fiery darts of the wicked one. Because he trusted God and his word. So then, how do we use the shield of faith to defend ourselves? That's the million-dollar question this morning and and really the the object of our query. The Apostle Peter said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. This is 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, which, write it down. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Resist him, Peter says, steadfast in the faith. Okay, pastor, what does it look like? Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this. He says, faith here means the ability to quickly apply what we know and believe so as to repel everything the devil does or attempts to do to us. I should have have projected it on the screen. I should have copied it for you, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Faith here means the ability to, to apply quickly what we know and believe so as to repel everything the devil does or attempts to do. And with that shield of faith, we are deflecting away those fiery darts, those flaming arrows, because we know and we believe what God has has said. You say, but pastor, that's not easy. I agree, but this is how we do it. Number one, letter A, know God's person. 
know God's person. How is it that the giant of faith, Abraham, knew God? Genesis 15, verse number one, God spoke to Abraham and said, do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. How did David, that great giant of the faith, know God? He wrote this in the Psalms, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. In whom shall I take refuge? My shield and the horn of my salvation. Again, David wrote in Psalm 115, O Lord, I'm sorry, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And so if you contend that it is too difficult to trust the Lord, to actively have faith in God and his word, then you don't know God because he's trustworthy. Let me give you a a simple crude illustration perhaps. Um, Imagine you stood at the edge of a great canyon Let's say the Grand Canyon. And let's say you wanted to cross to the other side. The only way to cross was a long, high footbridge. But you were afraid to step on that bridge because you did not know if it would hold you. However, as you stood at the edge of the canyon, you began to see others walking across that footbridge. In fact, many others, hundreds of people, now are coming back and forth across that footbridge, reaching the the other side safely. After a while, you would come to know that that bridge is safe. After a while, you would come to to be sure that that bridge would hold you. And I would say this to us. Have we not seen God himself like the bridge over and over and over again prove himself to support and to sustain and to hold his people? What's our problem? What's our problem? We stand there at the edge of the canyon, afraid to cross, because we don't know that we can trust the footbridge. I know what God has said, but I don't know if he can hold me fast through the circumstance. I would say to you, know your God. Secondly, claim God's promises. We've all seen the the bumper sticker, perhaps God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, that's a, a, a cute cliche and a nice sentiment, but really the truth is if God said it, that settles it whether you believe it or not. So why not just believe it? It's, it's easy for us to claim faith in God's promises but again, to step on that footbridge and read the scripture, memorize the scripture, saturate yourself with the scripture, not as an imposed discipline of some legalistic exercise, but as a natural delight. Because after we know God and then we learn the scripture, we can claim the promises in God's word so that when Satan tells us a lie, he whispers into our ear, into our head, into our heart, we can respond by claiming God's word for ourselves. And then number three, obey God's precepts. We sing the hymn, Trust and Obey. It's in fact that simple, obey. And an important precept that is found in the scripture is Ephesians 6, stand therefore by taking up the shield of faith. Folks, that is a command in the active voice that compels us to do what it says. It's how we do spiritual battle. We are saved by faith. We are sanctified by faith. 
We are alive by faith. We live by faith. We obey God even when Satan challenges us or questions what God has commanded us to do. This is the shield of faith. Final thought. You say, Pastor, what if I don't have enough faith? Okay. That is a lie of the wicked one that is whispering in your ear at the very start. None of us do. The amount of our faith isn't the issue. It's the object of our faith. We're strong in the Lord, not in ourselves. We take up the shield of faith, the shield which is faith, in the crucified, in the buried, in the risen, victorious Lord Jesus Christ. Do you choose to trust the wicked one or that great warrior, Jesus Christ?